PDA, neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and other people with neurodivergence to speak out on this condition as well as others, and providing resources to those who want to learn more. I am still in search of PDAers, medical professionals, and parents of PDA children who want to come share their experience. So if you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, Let's launch into this episode's topic. All right. Well, today we have as our very special guest, Dr. Jessica Mizak, who works at the Health and or Help and Healing Center. I'm sorry. Um, Dr. Mizak, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, so um, as someone who has the the expertise and the training in, you know, recognizing and diagnosing PDA, um, what, how would you describe PDA to someone who has never heard of it? Okay. Well, so PDA is a subtype of autism that can be more challenging to both recognize and diagnose, um, and also more challenging to, to manage just because it doesn't really look like autism typically does. Um, so many of the strategies that work well for autistic students are pretty ineffective and sometimes even negative for students with PDA. Um, so children and adults with PDA often have significant anxiety um, that can be triggered by everyday demands um, and can result in, in meltdowns, explosive behavior, and other difficulties sort of meeting these demands. So, you know, a, a person with PDA also has a diagnosis of autism, um, mm-hmm. but it's just a lot, a lot different than when most people think of sort of classic autism. Right. Yeah. And that was, I think that was one of the things too, that, um, because with my son, I know there were certain things that he would do and it would just, my understanding of autism was very much that classic definition. And I was like, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that he would, you know, um, look you in the eyes most of the time, or, you know, let you hug him, I would wonder whether or not he had, uh, autism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so what types of signs then would signal someone um, that maybe they need to uh, try to find or seek a a diagnosis of PDA? Well, so again, so so someone with PDA must also have criteria for autism. So there must be some sort of deficits and signs in um, social communication, some social interaction, but it can just be a little bit trickier um, to recognize sometimes. So you know, it may look like they are being social, but, you know, they're kind of bossing other children around more than sort of having a back and forth interaction. Um, Sometimes kids, you know, might sort of put on a character. So maybe they're acting like a character in a book or a show or or acting like an animal um, rather than being sort of authentically themselves. Um, And then there also has to be some type of restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior interests or activities. Um, So this could be, you know, some stereotyped movements. It could be inflexibility with changes to routines, you know, getting really distressed and really upset at small changes. 
having significant difficulties with transitions um, yes. or just having rigid thinking patterns. And this is, I think, a big one with kids with PDA. Um, so, you know, with the restricted fixated interest, it might be just, you know, this, this fascination with a particular object or show or sometimes a person. Um, and it can also sometimes look like, you know, differences in sensory input. So either, you know, not picking up on different sensory cues or being much more sensitive. So lights or smells or sounds or, or particular foods. Right. Um, so then, I mean, so those are kind of all typical autistic characteristics, but on top of that, um, kids with PDA have intense emotions and extreme mood swings. Um, so they often have a, many strategies to avoid doing the things that they don't want to do. Um, and, and most parents of these kids have tried many different things and they, <laughs> nothing seems to work. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, rewards and consequences, things, you know, that, that generally work with, with a lot of kids, you know, can backfire with, with kids with PDA. Um, unfortunately, many of the, yeah, many of the children with PDA also kind of struggle with getting to school. Um, mm -hmm. I think in the past year with virtual school, that has been a big challenge for these kids. Oh, yeah. Um, so parents, parents of some of the kids that I've, I've worked with have described to me, you know, they feel like they're trying to do a sales job with just about everything or doing a 12 hour improv set just to try to get their child to, you know, meet sort of daily expectations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you you have to get creative at times. You really do. Um, right. In order to, to kind of get these things done. And that's I think that's one of the things that really you know, sometimes people misunderstand is they're like, OK, so your kid's just running the house. And it's like, no, not really. They're not running the house. We still get things accomplished. We just have to be a little bit more creative in the way that it's presented and the way that, you know, we come across. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it can be exhausting because sometimes what works on one day, you know, may not work on a different day. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> That's very true. Right. You just keep trying. <laughs> um, so I know a lot of times it's um, harder to diagnose autism in, in girls versus boys. Um, is it the same with PDA? It is. Um, so yeah, girls are just socialized much different than boys and they are better at masking. So, you know, families can be very, very frustrated when they're seeing these extreme behaviors at home and, um, you know, maybe teachers aren't noticing anything or mm -hmm. maybe schools or, or, you know, other people are seeing these behaviors, but, but sort of attributing it to other conditions, thinking maybe it's ODD or disruptive mm -hmm. mood dysregulation disorder. Um, so yeah, no, it really takes time and, you know, some focus to, to really sort of peel back some of these behaviors, um, especially with girls when looking at PDA. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know, um, with, as far as I talked to someone, uh, a couple episodes back, um, and she never really, uh, as when she was younger, you know, she's an adult now getting this, this ADHD even, uh, diagnosis but she said it was it wasn't something that was really uh noticed much and she really felt like she masked a lot whenever she was younger um mm -hmm. so right well and it's you know it's fascinating so i do evaluations with both children and adults and mm -hmm. you know i'm not sure exactly where that line is but but adults are, are very knowledgeable and, and understand you know that when they are masking and just just recognizing that difference and and especially younger kids just don't get it. They just don't understand that they're doing it. 
Um, and so it can be really hard, um, you know, to sort of get that information from a child. And that's sort of where the parent's perspective, you know, the things that they are seeing um, can right. be really, really helpful. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's really sort of like the interesting thing too, is especially for like maybe older people, the, the adults that you're seeing now, because, you know, as an adult too, like when we were younger, the knowledge of this just wasn't, was, was even more scant, um, you know, cause it wasn't what like in the eighties, whenever they really started doing a lot of this research. So mm -hmm. that wasn't even a possibility then. So you have people who now that their adults are, are realizing this stuff too. Um, right. Now, is that the difference between kids and adults? How is, uh, does that, as far as like the process of assessing and diagnosing, how is that, is that different for children and adults? Are there different assessment tools or how is that done? Yeah, so yeah, there are absolutely different assessment tools. Um, there are many more assessments that are focused on children and, and many more professionals who work with children than adults. So I think, you know, for adult, adults, it can be really challenging to find somebody who, number one, will even assess them. Um, right. and, and number two, sort of looks past, um, you know, some of the big standard assessments that, again, sort of look at classic autism. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, many adults who, you know, are thinking about a diagnosis for the first time later in life, you know, they, they have learned to mask and they have learned to problem solve and, um, you know, they, they are not going to be doing sort of classically autistic things um, during a short interview. Um, so, so again, it's, you know, a lot of it is an interview, asking questions, um, trying to understand, yeah, I mean, so, okay, so you're making eye contact with me. Is that because, um, you know, that's comfortable and that is something that makes sense to you? Or is this something that you learned you're supposed to do and you have created rules for yourself about, um, you know, when and, and why you should do that, even if it is uncomfortable? And, and the answers are, are very, very different for people who are autistic versus uh, neurotypical people. Right, yeah, I would imagine. Um, mm -hmm. So you just sort of pick that stuff up along the way and you observe other people and you're like, okay, this is how these people are interacting. So this is how I'm supposed to interact. Um, mm -hmm. so. Well, and, 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 and I think a lot of adults too, yeah, were sort of pushed into masking by well-meaning parents and teachers and, and other providers. Um, and so, yeah, they, they learn to do these things because, um, you know, that's what was expected of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's why, why aren't you acting like these kids? Okay. Well now I need to watch these kids and see how these kids are acting and, um, you know, make sure that, that I'm not you know, stepping out of line and, and getting in trouble. Um, yeah, exactly. So for what is the best, um, since PDA isn't in the DSM, if someone goes through the process of being assessed and they're diagnosed, um, what advice do you have for somebody who is seeking accommodations? Like what, because I know for us, we had to sort of look through the different accommodations available. Um, but even so, like you said, you know, things that work with autism don't always work with PDA. So, you know, what sort of things should people be looking for in seeking accommodation? Yeah. Well, so, so while PDA is not in the DSM yet, um, autism is. And I think, you know, that an autism diagnosis can be pretty powerful in terms of accessing supports and accommodations. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think kind of leaning into the autism diagnosis to kind of open that door of, of getting an IEP or 
um, a 504 plan or, or whatever it is that the school um, is putting together, um, you know, to get that process started. And then once that door is opened, you know, it, it's supposed to be an individualized treatment plan. Um, right. So, you know, if the school is trying to use some cookie cutter recommendations for a child with PDA, it's just not going to work. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think part of it is having open communication between the, the family and the school um, and really sort of sharing strategies that work and um, recognizing that, again, something that works today may not work tomorrow. Um, but I, but I do think that, you know, schools and teachers, I mean, they want to do the best with kids and, and clearly if they're doing something over and over that is not working, you know, that's, that's not a good situation for anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now when it comes to, um, the sort of, I, I don't want to say treatment necessarily, but like therapy and learning to manage anxiety and triggers and, and PDA in general, um, what are the kinds of things that you guys do to help with managing that? Yeah, so I focus mostly on the diagnosis, but some of the programs that I think can be really helpful, um, there is a, a newer program called the Balance Program that is um, sort of a play-based therapy program. So I think anything that's that's play-based or very child-centered is going to be a good thing. Um, you know, I do PCIT therapy, and, and, and the very first part of that um, is this um, child-centered time where parents are using skills to really focus on the child and, and really sort of enhance the relationship. Um, so I think that can be really, really beneficial. So I think anything to sort of create a safe, a, uh, sorry, a safe space for the child, um, manage expectations. And then also, I think just treating meltdowns as panic attacks rather than bad behavior um, can really change just the whole perspective that somebody has. So I, you know, I, I think too that having a diagnosis really can help families get the support they need because I, I don't know if this was your your experience before, but I think sometimes without a diagnosis, families are just being sort of looked down on or, or told by others that, you know, you're just being too lenient or you're not yes. doing the things you're supposed to do, um, which can be really discouraging and, and really upsetting. And, and I think sort of having this information and diagnosis can help them communicate to others, you know, what is happening and, and sort of provide opportunity for education. Yeah. I mean, you know, prior to a diagnosis uh, for us, you know, there would be people who would say, you know, why do you let your child treat you this way? Or why do you let him act this way? And it's like, I'm not letting anything happen. I have absolutely no control over this. And, you know, he was seen as, you know, there, there were people who identified him as, as a manipulative child. Um, mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case, you know, and it's, I think that's one of the things too. Um, and I kind of, I know I kind of threw it on you at the last minute, but one of the things that I wanted to kind of touch on with you as well is, you know, sometimes people with a diagnosis of PDA will do things to get sort of that shock value reaction. Um, I mean, I know it's something I, I read about quite a bit in the, the, resources from the PDA society and in some of the books that I've read from PDAers themselves. And it's like, they know this isn't something they should do, but it's almost like they're fighting brain and body against each other uh, mm -hmm. to try to stop it. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's something that I think people really often misunderstand. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I do think, you know, with these meltdowns, when children are, are getting to the point of, you know, being overwhelmed and not knowing what to do. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely see a sense of, of just not having control and, and not knowing what to do, you know, and, and I think, you know, if you were to experience that type of anxiety and that type of panic, you know, you would try to escape that situation. And so whether that's, you know, distracting or delaying or escape or doing something shocking, that's, you know, it, it's trying to escape that, you know, terrifying situation. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, these, these kids aren't worried about, oh, well, what's going to happen later? Or, you know, no. what, what is so-and-so going to think? They're just trying to escape that situation. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's absolute fear. I mean, because that's one of the things that really made me doubt, I guess, is the, the best word to use that um, the ODD diagnosis that they, they tried to put on my son was that you could see in his eyes, like you could see the fear in his eyes when he would go into a meltdown. I mean, his body would tense up and you could see the panic in his eyes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's a very different understanding there between ODD and sort of the panic that accompanies PDA. And I think that's one of the, the major distinctions um, with sort of recognizing that. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that I think go kind of goes along with that, um, and for any of your, um, you know, because I, I, you said you deal with children, um, children who have like children who have PDA and have siblings that are not neurodivergent. Um, how, cause I've noticed that that's caused quite a bit of tension. Um, and how, what kind of advice do you have for parents, um, who are having, and we're trying to struggle with make, getting their non neuro, like their neurotypical children to understand some of the, the quirks of neuro, the, the PDA specifically. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that can be really challenging because kids are, are very in tune with sort of perceptions of, of fairness and, you know, and sort of equity between siblings. Um, but I think education and just, you know, that, yeah, so-and-so's brain works differently than ours. Um, mm -hmm. And so being able to, to explain that and, and, you know, that you're doing things, you know, for each of them in the way that they need. Um, mm -hmm. And again, trying to sort of give positive attention to both you know, so, so no one is being neglected. No one is being left out. It's just, yeah, mm -hmm. needs are different. Um, and, and kind of doing that, but I, I know that's very challenging for families. Yes. I mean, like my oldest, it's, it's not so bad because my oldest is nearly 20. Um, so for him, he's, there's, there's a bit more maturity there. He kind of understands it a little bit better, but, um, my, uh, the middle kiddo is, almost 16. And so there's this sort of, why won't he stay out of my room? Why doesn't he, you know, like, why won't he, why doesn't he have this concept of personal space? Why does he mess with me? And it's like, okay, but you have to understand. Right. So yeah, there, there's a little bit of struggle there uh, for sure. Um, yeah. Now, as far as, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier too, um, changing up parenting styles because um, I know one of the, the things that I did early on I read uh, Ross Green book because there were a lot of people in the parenting group who were like you know you gonna try the plan B parenting um, is that the kind of 
uh, like when you're explaining to parents that the change up, what, what kind of advice do you give to parents for parenting a PDA child? Yeah. So yeah, no, I think a lot of it is figuring out, you know, which, which battles to fight and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, recognizing where, where they can negotiate and where they can, um, you know, kind of come together and sort of give, give the child their space to do what they need to do. Um, You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like a lot of the families who have found me have, have already found PDA. So a lot of them, you know, kind of already know what's going on, have found a lot of resources. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the, the parent groups um, have been really, really helpful for families. Just, you know, number one, for them to see that they are not alone and, and there are others sort of going through this, but yes. also just hearing about, yeah, other, other strategies and, and other resources and things. Um, so it's been interesting that, you know, in a lot of ways it, it's, you know, I, I am educating them and they're educating me too, because, yeah, I mean, they're having this lived experience and, and you know, it has usually been a pretty long road um, for them by the time they do come to my office. Yeah, and one thing too that I, I kind of wanted to um, to ask is as far as being involved with PDA, um, what, what sort of brought you to it? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been doing autism evaluations for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of different kinds of clients, but I, I came across PDA um, during a meeting with Diane Gould, who's the one who runs um, the PDA oh, North America her. website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Um, and I, you know, I, it wasn't even on my radar. I, you know, I didn't know anything about it. And she started describing it to me and it made a lot of sense. So, um, you know, when there was a, a training that came up, I thought, okay, I, I need to do this. Um and even, you know, doing the training, you know, it was parents and professionals all together and, you know, mm-hmm. hearing some of these parents share their stories and the things that they're dealing with. And, um, you know, I was just like, you know, this is, this is something I can do. You know, I, I, I like doing these challenging cases and, and clearly there's a big need for this. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how it happened. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Diane Gould's the one that helped me find the psychologist that did, um, cause I was, I was at a loss. I was like, okay, do I need to go to the UK? And it was like, okay, there's a PDA North America group. Okay. She's in Chicago. Do I need to go to Chicago? Like I was willing to do whatever it took. And so I, whenever I emailed, uh, whenever I emailed the, you know, I did the contact us thing on the PDA North America website and she, uh, she responded within like in less than an hour. It was yeah. amazing. She was like, no, like it, uh, there were some listings of people in Texas. Give me just a minute. And she came back and she gave me, you know, information on where to go. And so what, I was like, oh, it needs to be a transatlantic flight turned into a six hour drive. Um, and that was, <laughs> I, I was so grateful to her uh, for that. It was amazing. Um, yeah, no, I, I think for sure that she, you know, is single-handedly, you know, going to sort of change the landscape of, of the U.S. With, with understanding PDA. I think she's, you know, she's doing some great work and, you know, just, just providing a lot of education to, to professionals and parents. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just having professionals like you who are, you know, trained in this um, and able to, you know, giving that sort of answer, because, you know, I mentioned previously in the podcast, a diagnosis doesn't change anything. It doesn't make anything better. doesn't solve anything, but it does give you that sort of torch in the darkness. You know, now what you're fighting against. And that in and of itself is a huge relief yeah, when absolutely. You know, when you're trying, when you're searching with your child, because I mean, my son, 
that poor baby, he was, he was spiraling. It was, it was heartbreaking to watch, um, you know, and he would, uh, like the, the self-hate that was coming out of a child so young was just, it was really scary. And having someone provide that sort of answer was, it was a huge relief. So you, all of you guys who are, who are trained in this and who are helping these kids and these families and these adults, I mean, we are, believe me, extremely grateful for you and all you do um, because it's, it's really helping a lot. <laughs> it really yeah. does. Yeah. Well, and I do, you know, I, I, I think the parents, you know, when I do share a diagnosis and, and, you know, kind of, I, I, I do, there's a, there's a sense of, of relief and just <laughs> gratitude, I think just, okay, you know, you heard me, you believe me. Okay. Yes. This yes. is now we know where to go. Yes, because we, I, I mean, we spent a couple years talking to different doctors and none of them wanted to listen. They're like, no, he's, he's, it's just ADHD. And I'm like, no, it's not. They're like, okay, well maybe ODD. And I'm like, I really can't get behind that. And it's, I'm sorry. I know I'm not, I know I'm not a doctor. I know I haven't, I don't have the training you do. And it's not that I'm trying to say that your knowledge is invalid, but I'm spending a lot more time with him and I'm telling you there's something else there. And when someone finally listened, it was it was huge. It was, it was absolutely huge for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one last question, um, sure. because we're, we're getting short on time, but, um, because of, you know, the fact that there is sort of more attention, do you think that we're going to start seeing as knowledge about PDA expands? Do you think that we're going to start seeing, you know, more diagnoses and more, um, I guess more acceptance going forward now that it, the, you know, the word is getting out there, do you think this is something that is going to sort of change significantly going forward? I, I truly do think so. And, and I truly do hope so. You know, I think that, you know, their information gets out there in a number of ways and both with, you know, the PDA North America website providing information. And I think families, you know, finding information and then podcasts like this, um, you know, so I, I am doing evaluations for children who are in areas where there are not providers that, that understand PDA, um, right. but they are going back to their town and they are sharing this with their, you know, the therapist and the school and their pediatrician. And so I think in that way, you know, all of those people now are going to understand PDA. And so I think, you know, both from the top down and the bottom up. I do think that that parents are finding out and professionals are learning more about this. And I think that it will become more and more understood. Um, you know, I, I don't know when when the DSM will catch up and that will probably take some time. But, you know, I think people being familiar with it and um, understanding, I think, will make a huge difference, even if it isn't quite caught up in the, the DSM. All right. Well, um, did you want to provide any information about the Health and Healing Center before we leave off? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm um, just a private practice psychologist up in the Chicago area. Um, uh, Helpandhealingcenter.com. You can look up more information. Um, I do some, some TikTok stuff too. So trying to provide some information about autism and, and PDA on there. Um, again, just Help and Healing Center. Um, I do both yeah, in person and some virtual evaluations. So feel free to look me up if you um, are interested in that type of thing. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Mizek, for coming on the show. Um, I really just, 
I've been wanting to try to get that that professional input. Um, And in fact, TikTok is where I found you as well. And so having, uh, being able to to have someone to provide that professional insight has been extremely helpful. And I'm really uh, grateful to you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was great. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.